0: If you're out on the road, feeling lonely and so cold, all you have to do is call my name and I'll be there on
1: the next train. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're talking about possibly the most anticipated show of the year, Gilmore Girls, A Year in the Life. Plus, we'll be joined later by Scott Patterson, who plays Luke on the show. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt
2: Zoller Seitz. Happy Thanksgiving, Gazelle. Happy
1: Thanksgiving, Matt, and Vulture TV columnist Jen Chaney.
3: Hello, Rory and Lorelai. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hello. So we're gonna get we're gonna get deep into Gilmore Girls in just a few minutes, but. First, we're going to do our prompt for this week, which if you haven't tuned in in a couple weeks, this is a new segment we have at the top of each show where our producers throw a prompt at us and we have to answer it. And this week's prompt is in these trying times that we're in, what is the TV show you go to for for comfort? What is your comfort food television?
3: Jen, anything come to mind? Well, I have I have two shows that come to mind. Uh, The first is Friday Night Lights, Mm. um, just because, you know, obviously that show does deal with some serious issues. Um, There's an abortion storyline on that show at one point, among many other things. But I feel like it is a show about people trying to do the right thing, about people trying to... um, be be kind and generous to one another in a way that is uplifting. So that is one. And then the other one I, I just wrote about for us, and I mentioned it even though you really can't watch it, um, and that's Ed, which was a, a show that was on NBC um, back in the early 2000s. It lasted four seasons. It was about, starred Tom Cavanaugh as a guy who, uh, goes back to his hometown of Stuckeyville, Ohio, uh, after his marriage blows up and he decides to open a law practice in a bowling alley, as one does. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of eccentric kind of small town characters. But I, I thought it was written with a lot of, again, optimism at its core, but also a little bit of kind of pop culture, um, self-awareness, Uh, and the cast is phenomenal. The problem is you really can't watch it right now. It was on up TV for a little while earlier this year and, and it's possible it might come back to, to that, but at the moment it's not streaming and it's not on DVD. Um, hopefully that'll change someday. That was another one that popped into my head.
2: My comfort food is cartoons. Ooh, it's cartoons Mm. because, you know, if I want to be comforted, I want to feel good. And the best way to feel good watching TV is to laugh. And, um, There are some live action shows that I think are pretty good comfort food, but I always go to the cartoons and and, uh, number the the short list would include The Simpsons, of course, particularly anything from the first like 13 years of the show's almost 30 year run. They really had an incredible run of great seasons. But I also like to, if I'm in a family situation, convince people to maybe sample something that the younger People in the room and the kids haven't seen yet. And for me, that's a number one suggestion is The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh,
3: I love Rocky the and Adventures Bullwinkle. The Adventures of Rocky and
2: Bullwinkle is the wellspring from which so much sophisticated and or unusual animation springs. And I don't think it gets enough credit. And it's it's a really a great example of high and low humor because there's this sophisticated kind of conceptual self-aware humor happening at the top levels, including the narration, which is is sort of, making fun of the very idea that they're telling you a compelling story. Like, they're continually undercutting any <laughs> drama that happens. But also just the gags. The gags are so stupid. And I I, I laugh harder the, the stupider the gag is. Like, the more broad and obvious the gag is, the harder I laugh at it. <laughs> and this is a kind of show that'll have, like, Rocky and Bullwinkle walking down the street, and Boris Badenov and Natasha are poking out of a window, and they see them coming, and they push a safe out of the window, and it almost crushes Bullwinkle. He steps aside randomly at the last minute, and you hear... <laughs> And Bullwinkle looks to the side and then he looks down and sees the safe and then he looks up at the window and goes, hey up there, you dropped your safe.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I used to watch Rocky and Bullwinkle every day before I went to school in third grade. Every morning. Love it.
2: Yes. Those were the days. What about you? (laughs)
3: Um, So my choices are
1: younger uh the tv land show i love it yeah i I love younger it's a recent favorite of mine and it's it's a show uh, starring sutton foster who's also in the gilmore girls reboot um and she plays a woman who's 40 years old and just got out of her marriage she has a a kid who's all grown up she's trying to get back into the uh, she's trying to get back to work because she hasn't been working for since she had her kid and she's finding it difficult to find a job in publishing so she pretends to be a 26-year-old woman and it it sounds unbelievable but Sutton Foster has this usefulness to her that mm. makes it believable but also just unbelievable enough that it's really funny um but it, it's kind of just like this little fantasy of a show and i and it oh it's created by Darren Star the creator of Sex and the City so it kind of has that kind of vibe to it. A kind
2: of bouncy feeling.
1: Bouncy feeling. And it has like this quick-witted dialogue that takes on millennials in this way that feels not cruel, but loving in a way. And Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I just think it's like Every time I watch an episode, it's like crack. I just have to keep watching more. (laughs) So if that's just what your form of comfort is, you should definitely watch Younger. Um, And then the other one I wanted to mention is The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, which is a web series. Yes. And I would have mentioned Insecure, but that show has kind of a darker edge to it. And it's a wonderful show. It's by the same creator, Issa Rae. But Awkward Black Girl has this kind of sweetness to it that I think is really comforting Um, and kind of it's very low stakes. It's low production value kind of makes it charming in this way That's I don't know. It's very, it's just like, it feels good to watch it and it's, she's so relatable in her kind of um, like awkwardness for lack of a better word. (laughs)
2: It's kind of, it's, it is kind of wonderful how, you know, they've managed to, they're kind of working simultaneously in the vein of, you know, the mary tyler moore show and i love lucy mm-hmm. you know at the same time but it's this little short show and it's got yeah. a political consciousness to it as well
1: and it's great because you can wa- episodes are anywhere from you know a few minutes to 15 minutes i think the longest it gets is maybe 20 minutes but they're generally you can just whip right through them all two seasons are available on the awkward black girl website so that's this week's prompt Listeners, if you'd like to weigh in on this week's prompt, or if you'd like to suggest a prompt for a future week, please send us an email or a voice memo at tvquestions@vulture.com or 646-504-7673.
4: Luke can swoop. I just waltz. know I'm in. I am all in. Be like the first 15
0: minutes of Saving Private Ryan, but at least those guys got to be. But I'm not going to Harvard. I had sex. But I'm not no. going to Harvard.
1: I'm saving a child. The minute the strip turned, you thing. jump by jump, Jack. Eternal damnation is side. what I'm
0: risking for my rock and roll right the because group. I love you, you idiot.
1: So I don't know that there has ever been a reboot with quite so much fanfare around it. Maybe Arrested Development, but I've been pretty surprised by kind of the Gilmore Girls fans I didn't know existed that are all out there mm-hmm. that I never realized I was had there were so many people like me who loved the show um and this show this reboot I think made everyone realize just how beloved it is and it's finally arrived on Netflix last Friday day after Thanksgiving um and we are going to be talking about all four episodes of the new season of Gilmore Girls because we're assuming the the rabid fans out there have, have watched them all. So if you haven't watched them, please save this podcast for when you have. And for those of you who have, we're going to get right into it.
2: Uh Jen, I, I I think we should probably throw this over to you because you're you're as you're you're one of the Gilmore Girls super fans and you reviewed this. So do you want to give us your, your your overall take?
3: Sure. I I will start with the positives first. You know, I thought the first episode, which is set in winter, these are for kind of mini movies that go season to season and the opening of it, just the setting, the twinkling lights, uh, the fact that you're seeing Lorelai and Rory back together doing rapid fire dialogue and the way that they kind of call attention to the fact that they're doing that again and kind of taking a deep breath, like, Oh, this feels good. Uh, it opens in this really comforting, nice way where it feels like, yes, it does feel good to be back here. And it, it it's nice to see all of these actors together again. There are a lot of fun like nods back to the original series and little cameos that, you know, we were not allowed to talk about before the show came out because the um, embargo on this from Netflix was crazy. Yeah, uh, it
2: was. Do <laughs> it was not like discuss under-
3: life trajectories. I don't know how to not discuss life It was life like tra- bordering
2: trajectory. on like the kind of warnings that Matthew Weiner used to send out before the seasons of Madden. It's like it was always the weirdest things. <laughs> right. It's like it was OK to mention certain momentous big things, but don't reveal the year it set in and don't mention that Roger has a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I was convinced the whole time I was writing that review that, like, I'd type the wrong word by accident and, like, a trap door would open and I'd end up in, like, Netflix Gitmo or something. I, <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there are some fun, even fun things that are kind of outside of the Gilmore universe. Like, um, as, as a Parenthood fan, I loved seeing Mae Whitman and her having their interaction. I love seeing Peter Krause pop up uh, as, a, as a park ranger.
2: Definitely um, a guy that you want on a show that has a lot of rapid fire dialogue.
3: Exactly. So all of that was really fun. And uh, but, you know, I I did have some some misgivings about it. Uh, You know, I felt like there was something sort of, you know, Stars Hollow has always been kind of resistant to change. Luke has always had that anti cell phone sign up in his diner, and he still does. But now he's even, you know, conning people so that they can't use the Wi Fi. And, you know, Taylor makes that big speech about, you know, go home and pay for Wi-Fi. That's what I do. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that was, um, you know, meant in good fun, I think. But but watching it, it felt like a little more aggressive in that kind of um, anti- technology standpoint and even the stuff about the what was it the 30 something club of all the the 30 somethings who have had to move back into their parents basement and love paul thomas anderson which is a negative in the gilmore girls
2: world (laughs) which i i gotta admit i laughed at
3: (laughs) (laughs) uh i was thinking to myself watching that and you know i'm I'm a, I have a little bit of get off my lawn in my DNA. I mean, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm I'm already cranky and old. But I, I was thinking, you know, a lot of the people who watch this are, are people in their 20s and 30s who have that nostalgia for watching it when they were younger. And I thought, I, I'm not sure why they're being quite so aggressive about that.
2: Right. Do you really want to be insulting the, you know, the lower half of the generational ladder that's going to be watching this together at Thanksgiving?
3: Right. Exactly. So there were there were some things in the humor and certainly, I mean, we could do an entire podcast about. Roy Gilmore's journalism career, and the many things about it that make zero sense to me <laughs>
1: I, I can't stand it uh,
2: I especially it, love when they they put I, they put her New Yorker article on the back of the menu and you see it, and it's like
1: it's like five hundred words it looks like an op ed from u
2: s a today <laughs> but that's something nobody who's not a journalist is going to care about that, so anyway
3: right. but but even like the 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 ease with which she was able to keep going to London, I'm like, where's she getting this money? Yeah, that's the other think. thing,
1: like just. Rory's kind of cluelessness or just like self-importance seemed a little bit more aggravating to me this time because like now we're seeing her try to be a journalist. And every time she's in a situation where I feel like you should sympathize with her a little bit, I found myself completely incapable of doing that because she goes into an interview and thinks that they should just love her. And she falls asleep during an interview while she's interviewing someone on the street. Like... I don't know. I just, she just.
2: I was willing to accept that, you know, under the, you know, the Preston Sturges rule. Like, you know, that was just that was just goofy to me.
1: Yeah, I guess I just didn't care for much of it. Like, I don't care. I realized how little I care about Rory as a journalist, mm-hmm. and so much of her plot was about that.
2: That's true. It's you, much, you care much, You care about her much more in relation to her family and the other people in the community, right? And, like, yeah, I don't care. Her career trajectory is not, like, at the top of my list of things that I I want to know more about.
1: Exactly. Except
2: in as much as it relates to her relationship to her mom and everyone else.
1: Yeah, like, I was willing to accept that within the Gilmore Girls world, Rory is a great journalist in the original run of the series. But I didn't actually have to want to investigate that more. I, I, I was willing to suspend my disbelief because she's a person who just shows no curiosity, really, with the world outside of herself. So it didn't make it never made sense to me. But it was fine that that was the job they had given to her that she was
3: pursuing. Um, Well, and also in the original, she's young. And so you don't quite know. She's still learning. And now she's supposed to be very accomplished in getting published in the most prestigious publications. And so it just it turns it It, turns it a little bit so that you have a different expectation.
1: And maybe that is only something that someone who is in this industry will, you know, quibble with but
2: oh that's true I, yeah I, i'm not I, I yeah i can't i mean like i don't monday I, i'm not going to monday morning monday morning quarterback the uh the the investigatory skills of the detectives on you know svu right or I guess, something
1: yeah <laughs> it was more that her the i i found myself a little um uninterested in the plot lines that the characters had so i wasn't super into lorelei's whole wild adventure and she doesn't seem like the type of person who would do that yeah, that that really I, felt I, strange to me. And as I was talking to my coworker Jackson, he said she would totally be a movie wild person, not a book wild person. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think the length of of certain things contributed to that feeling. I did really like Rory and Logan's dynamic because it felt natural to me. It was a part of every season. Mm-hmm. I, I could I could understand how that was a part of her life. Um and you know, I th- I thought they have a good, they still have a good rapport. But I think I realized I just don't like reboots. And I was never going to like this.
2: That was what I you, was going to ask you about next. Yeah. Is, this is part of a larger trend. And I think maybe at some point we should discuss that trend.
1: I, I like all the service y stuff. It just, it feels like this is not, it doesn't feel like this is the show I love. This feels like it's putting these characters in here to elicit a response from us that feels a little self. I, I can't remove myself from the feeling of knowing that this is like it's it doesn't feel natural. I don't know. It mm-hmm. just it's you're not immersed in their lives like you were at the time when the show was going on. You're kind of coming into it at this point where you're kind of refamiliarizing yourself and then to be in that place and then to have, you know, all these people pop up because you know they're trying to make you remember a past time, right? I, I guess I just don't care for the it.
2: the X Files. Did that too. Yeah, the, the X Files, the, did the, it too. The X-Files, like the the pilot of the Return of the X Files, the first episode, I guess you could say, is uh, it's so fan servicey that it almost seems like a parody. You know, like yeah. they they make sure to give it, every character a big entrance so that if you're watching it with a group of people, you can go woo.
1: Exactly, you and it, it feels like kind of a weird clone of itself, where something about that really. Leaves me feeling unsettled. And yeah, I don't know. I was talking to Jen about this. I just I feel like reboots that we have seen just feels like there's less imagination going on because you're not doing as much work to develop them because we already know them.
2: Well, what we're talking about here is the sequel problem. Yeah. And the, and the classic sequel problem is um, how can you give the audience that love the original something that is more or less like what they enjoyed the first time? But make it sufficiently different so you don't just seem like you're repeating yourself. That's always the trick. And the most that's why I'm actually, you know, I know I'm probably going to, for a lot of people, torpedo any point I'll make on this podcast and perhaps ever for all time by <laughs> saying this. But that's one of the things that I found so fascinating about the Netflix season of Arrested Development. I knew Development. you were going to say that. You knew? <laughs> of course it is. That's what it's going to say on my tombstone. You know, it'll say, you know, 1968 to, you know, let's say 2046. <laughs> right. Matt Zeller cites right about Arrested Development season four. That's what I was going to say. But, you know, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm saying what I admired about it was that it said, all right, we've got a chance to do this. Let's not just do the same thing. Let's do something that is different and something that is imagined uh, for a different format. And they really rethought that thing for Netflix. And they took advantage of all, all the things you can do on Netflix that you couldn't do when they were on Fox. And for a lot of people, it didn't work at all. For some people, it worked in pieces. For me, it—I uh, just like the audacity of it so much that I kind of didn't care what worked or didn't work from scene to scene. That's not the case here, and it hasn't been the case with a lot of reboots, including the X Files reboot. Yeah, where where what you're what you're what you're seeing is like you were saying, Gazelle. Um, a you know an over reliance on nostalgia and familiarity as a crutch when. I think when so much time has elapsed, you really want to dig very, very deep and, and, and try to shake things up a bit. And that's why I'm so still excited about uh, the return of Twin Peaks because uh, David Lynch um, is a devious bastard. He really is. He really is. And I just know, I just know that that people are going to sit down to watch this, they're going to hear the familiar theme music of Twin Peaks, and they're going to have that, ah, response. I mean, that's... And then he's going to pull, like, a giant bunch of intestines out of a vat and throw them at the camera, and people are going to go, ah, this isn't Twin Peaks. But right. the thing is, I it is
3: Twin Peaks in a way to do that. Like, right. I, I expect that of David Lynch. I think what's difficult about this is that on one hand... You do want a reboot to, to try some new things. You don't want it to feel like a carbon lazy carbon copy of what you are familiar with, but you do also want that feeling of comfort. I mean, I think, I think you want something that feels like it is taking chances and doing some things that are different. You don't want a carbon copy of the, the same show that you knew, but you do also want it to feel like that show that you knew in certain ways. And I think that is a very tricky balance to strike and when I tried to think about, well, what are other examples that I feel like have struck that balance? The only things that I immediately came up with were movies. Yeah, me too. Um, um, I feel like the Muppets that, that came out a few years ago, not the TV show, Mm -hmm. but the, the, the first one that came back with Jason Segel, like that was exactly the right, tone to strike. It just if you were if you remember seeing, you know, the original Muppet movie and you were sitting in the theater watching that and they did Rainbow Connection again, you got a little bit weepy, but it was telling a totally different story that younger generations could could hook into. And and I did feel that way about the most recent Star Wars movie. Um, I know a lot of people said J.J. Abrams was was just kind of retelling the original story with slightly different details. I didn't totally agree with that. But you came out of that feeling like, wow, this is exciting. This was a wonderful thing to share with my kids and it felt a- enough like the old ones and different enough that it just was very very satisfying and I have not had that experience with the TV yeah. reboot yet.
2: Yeah, that Star Wars, uh, the, the Force Awakens actually, I'm a big defender of that movie too and, and I feel like, this is going to sound completely bizarre but bear with me, one of the complaints about Mad Men that I heard from people who were kind of naysayers of it was oh it 's too it 's too simplistic it 's too superficial it 's like it is if you 're only what? looking at the it 's only if you 're looking at the top level of it, the way that it deals with right. history, the way it presents American history that sort of thing but it 's like there 's about six other layers underneath that, and I thought the force awakens had that, and one of the layers was the entire story is about nostalgia it 's all about mm-hmm. legacy it 's all about trying to live up to the legacy of the generation that came before and they're using artifacts they're you know they're using artifacts technology they're telling stories about things that that occurred in the past some of which were not covered in the movies and you feel this incredible weight of the past sitting on the shoulders of that movie and that's what gives that movie so much of its heft it's not just seeing you know Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill again and their familiar parts it's seeing how they interact with people who who uh, uh have a relationship to them that's not just one of blood or friendship <clears throat> and mm-hmm. uh I think uh, the the Rocky uh, the Rocky continuation Creed was even oh better yeah that's in that, another great that example respect. yes Creed was great because like like the Force Awakens it was not only about um, what it was about it was also about our relationship to these characters in this story and that's a story that that's a very deep movie because it's about the the demographic and g- uh, change as well as generational change it's putting a black man at the center of a Rocky movie. And it never at any point gives the movie back over to Rocky. And it's basically saying, eventually, this is going to be America. You know, we'll have to rally around somebody who's not a white man. And that's okay. You can actually enjoy that and feel love and feel respect from it. And even when they're standing on the steps of the Philadelphia Art Museum at the end, the logical thing to do would have been to cue the Rocky theme. But they don't. They give you bits of the melody of the Rocky theme throughout, particularly in the fight. But in the very final shot, it's the Creed's theme, you know, and that's a level mm-hmm. of sophisticated thought that I think should be brought to more reboots of all kinds if they're going to be done. I don't think Gilmore Girls does that. I think it I, and I don't know that people really are going to care that it didn't do right. that, honestly. Right. Right. I, I, I'm just not convinced that anybody care. I mean, we are, you know, people always say, you're overthinking it. You're overthinking it. Turn your brain off. Like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> However, if there was ever anything that begs a sort of response, it's the it's a series of four Gilmore Girls movies released every Thanksgiving weekend that you can watch when you're digesting turkey. You know,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> with with some of the arcs, I felt like it was just reenacting things that we've already seen in different ways. Although I do think Lauren Graham's performance, you know, she's she's bringing a lot more. You she you can tell she's a different in a different place in her life. You mm. know, it's not like she's <laughs> the same Lorelai that she was. But I I guess I was a little disappointed that her arc kind of just ended with her having an epiphany about marrying Luke. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't feel that different from anything we've ever seen her struggle with before.
2: Yeah. And didn't you? Weren't you sort of going like, why didn't this already happen?
0: Yeah.
1: Like, and I I just, I wish we had more about like what happened with, what was their life like in the intervening years? And maybe that's too much to ask because it would take a little uh, explication, but... I I don't know. I I didn't feel I didn't get if this was meant to be this continue this view into like where they are now. I I don't feel like it was additive in terms of, you know, what their relationship is like now that they've been together for this long. And one thing I wanted to mention kind of separately is the use of HD camera, Mm -hmm. which I we were talking about this at Vulture. There's something about it that kind of takes away from that warm feeling of Gilmore Girls mm-hmm. where it has this kind of softness over everything and it just felt a little everything felt like brighter and like almost too saccharine in a way that yeah kind of contributed to my feeling like this is a clone of Gilmore Girls
2: <laughs> there's a flatness to the image no yeah. matter how much you do to it and there are only a very few television shows that I think have overcome that one one of them was Mad Men Mm-hmm. I think, but uh, the best thing to do, I think, with HD and M- Michael Mann understood this was you can't treat it like film. You have to sort of embrace the video ness of it. And I and I think what we see there is uh, on on Gilmore Girls. Not a lot of a lot of series. Almost everything shot, you know, digitally now. Nobody uses film. Is um, a kind of a compromise. Like it's, it's sort of they're trying to make a film like image, but they're not doing enough to sort of push in in that direction.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But I know what you mean. And I, and I wonder if uh, if Deadwood ever gets made, if we're going to have the same problem yeah. with that, or if they're going to allow them to shoot on 35, which HBO still sometimes does. Westworld is shot on 35 millimeter. Oh, that's
0: right. There are a few
2: other shows that are still shot on film, including The Walking Dead, which is shot on Super 16, uh, because supposedly they tested out a bunch of different formats and they decided that that was the one that made the zombie makeup look the most convincing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I, I, I noticed oh, yeah. that, too. I noticed that, too.
1: One thing before we wrap up our Gilmore Girls conversation, I wanted to ask you guys how you feel about the ending of mm-hmm. the seasons, which ends with uh, Rory saying, Mom, I'm pregnant. Um, and that's just where it ends. And I. Sorry, I, I, Jordan. Sorry, Jordan. So, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> our, producer, our producer our hasn't producer hasn't watched it yet just got
1: spoiled sorry really really sorry um, but so th- they had always said it's that the show was always going to end on four words that Amy Sherman Palladino had in mind and at first I was like this is three words or is the which con- it is a contraction
3: is-, is a word a single word but my she used it in apostrophe form but it is
1: actually four words Because she says, Mom, and then her mom says, Yeah, and then she says, I'm pregnant.
0: Hey, what's going on in there? I
3: want to remember it all every detail.
0: Mom? Yeah. I'm pregnant.
1: So that's the okay. word. All right, all right. Yeah. Just, just to clear things up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I felt like it was setting it up for more episodes. Oh, clearly, Most, mostly because of Jess's meaningful.
2: Yeah, like, and and I gotta say, her. I I love the I love the Billy Wilder sort of way of ending. You, yeah. know, like, so you, you know, like, you know, shut up it. and deal from the apartment Yeah. or nobody's perfect from some like it hot. Like that. that's that's the kind of vein that this is in. I love it in that way. But I also I just really, really, really feel kind of bummed whenever they introduce pregnancy into the plot line of an ongoing series. Yeah. Because what it often does is it, it, you know, the next few episodes are all, you know, the woman who had the baby just dealing with the baby all the time and they can't be involved in the other plot lines anymore. Yeah. And it's very rare that a show finds a way around that.
1: Yeah, I, I, and I get what you're saying about how it had that kind of Billy Wilder feel. But I didn't feel like that kind of really fit the show's tone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, like, I wasn't, I just felt like, wait, that was the end? Like, it didn't feel like what, yeah. it, you know, like, it felt like on another kind of show with a, a different type of humor that that would have really played well.
2: You know, Hannah and her sisters ends exactly the same way.
1: Mm, I haven't seen
2: that. Yeah, the last words in that are "I'm pregnant."
3: I don't know. I don't really want to see her be pregnant. Like, I guess.
0: I not. <laughs> oh, yeah,
2: that was that's <laughs> I my like that's my feeling. Comparing too. it
3: to nobody's perfect, like that to me that puts a nice period on the end of that movie. This this felt like it opened yeah. a door that I'm like, oh, I'm I'm halfway through the door now. What do I do? Kind of thing. Um, I mean, I understand. Like it kind of it brings it back full circle because obviously, you know, all of this comes out of Lorelai having Rory. Um so I understand that impulse but it, it did feel like oh wait what yeah <laughs> that, it just if, if, if it, left, it left you on an uncertain and like you said I'm sure it's to open it up to to more episodes but it 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 didn't feel like a satisfying period at the end of a sentence to me and maybe it wasn't intended to but yeah
1: right yeah I I don't know I I I guess there is a possibility that that was the ending they had in mind, like you said, Jen, going full circle, kind of like she's thirty two now, she's having a kid. But if it if it were f- if it weren't for Jess's look, I feel like that's such a weird thing to just leave hanging there. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't know, like that's well, such like a in the last few minutes of the show to put that in there just seems a little. Uh, It seems like they're setting it up for her and Jess to have because everything else was about like wrapping things up, you know?
2: Yeah, but the structure of the the structure of these episodes is is, a season, the seasons of the year. Right. You know, so there's that continuous, you know, decay leading to rebirth or regeneration. So that ending, you know, that ending certainly tracks with the way that they've structured the story this time. The question of whether or not it articulates that as clearly as you want it to is a a whole separate issue. Right. And, you know, I'm gathering that for us, it mostly didn't.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. We'll see
2: what happens, I guess. You seem really sad. I I, I got to say, you seem sad.
1: I am. I'm sad about it. I wanted to let, I don't know. I wanted to like it, and now that I don't like it, I want people to hate it with me.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's the American dream.
2: (laughs) There it
5: is. (laughs) (laughs) La, 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 la.
1: take a quick break, but the Vulture TV podcast will continue in a moment with Scott Patterson. We are joined now by Scott Patterson, better known on Gilmore Girls as Stars Hollow's purveyor of good coffee, Luke. Scott, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Great to be here.
1: Yeah. Uh so I just to start us off, I'm curious if the coffee that you guys pour on set is real.
4: Oh, you sh- you bet your sweet bippy it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's as real as it gets. It's cold often, but it's real.
1: What what brand of coffee is it?
4: Um I I couldn't I couldn't tell you that. <laughs> I think it's my own brand. I have my own line of coffee. No, I'm kidding.
1: So, I'm curious, you know, in filming this this new season of Gilmore Girls, how how it all um did you did you film all the seasons in order, or on your end were you doing kind of?
4: We were we were block shooting, which meant if a um, a certain area of the uh, of the town was decorated and dressed a certain way, you know, and th- in other words, we were shooting uh, all four seasons in one day, parts of all four seasons in one day. Like on on a sound stage, we'd be shooting summer and then. In the afternoon, we'd be outside shooting winter, and, and then we'd change and, into fall, go down the street and shoot fall scenes. It was, it was all very confusing. And uh, it's kind of amazing how the production team kind of kept track of everything, because that is a logistical nightmare right there, uh, to, to try to shoot 600 pages of material in four seasons in three and a half months. It was an awesome task. If there's a, an award category just for that, then we should definitely win every one of those.
3: <laughs> it, it must have been surreal in some ways to, to go back to the town and go back with all of these actors and, and assume that role again. Was that an easy adjustment to make? What was that like?
4: You know, I thought it was going to be easy, but it wasn't. And the first day on set for me, uh, first diner scene, you know, I didn't really feel like uh, Luke, I didn't feel, I didn't feel it. And I asked Amy if I could take like a little five, 10 minute walk around Stars Hollow or the fictional town and just sort of get the old scent back. And she said, okay, go ahead. And I came back feeling pretty good. Um, you know, uh, I've changed a lot in nine years and I just, I kind of lost the character in nine years cause I haven't been thinking about him. And it was a really small window From the time the show got okayed, we got the scripts and then we started shooting. So there wasn't a lot of time to prep. Um, But yeah, it came back. It all came flooding back.
1: You did an an interview with TV Line recently and you had said that, you know, Luke is Luke is a little bit different, but he's he's still the same as well. I'm, I'm curious, you know, in what ways you think he's changed and if that was at all influenced by how you've changed as well.
4: I mean look he's older as am I he's a little maybe a little more mellow but not really but the you know look the the good the good news with Luke is he doesn't change he's resistant to change and that's what I you know that that gives comfort to the to the fans and to of the show they can rely on him not to change they know what they're going to get with him you know he's a throwback character he's a guy that you don't see much anymore on television um so fans take a great comfort in that. He's kind of the rock at Gibraltar that whole that whole churning sea over there that is Gilmore.
1: You've talked about um you know the banter on the show and you know how because uh Lorelai and Rory speak so quickly, you had to kind of calibrate how you spoke to work with their flow. I think you said you had to be smoother. Uh I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit just about that.
4: There's a difference between hearing the show and hearing the pace of the show as an audience and actually doing the dialogue at that clip because what they're hearing, yes, it seems fast, but when you're doing it, it's twice as fast. So um, it's daunting and you've got to be word perfect. And the thing with those two is... You know they have a certain, um, they 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 speak with a certain rhythm cadence and at a certain clip. You can you know as an actor you can t- you tend to get caught up in that pace and you can't because that's not Luke's pace that's not Luke's rhythm. But you also can't trip them up you know timing wise or cue wise. You know what I mean? So. I had to find that sort of sweet spot where I wasn't tripping them up, but I wasn't getting caught up in their rhythm and their pace. So, yeah, I had to smooth everything out a little bit. I was more successful at it at at certain times than at others. But um, that was the challenge of, at least technically speaking, of the role.
3: You mentioned before that there wasn't a whole lot of time between the green light and, and actually going into production. And obviously within the narrative there's, there's time that passed that we don't really see what happened during that period before we pick it up in the present again. Did you spend, were you able to spend any time thinking about, well, what, what would Luke have gone through in the intervening years and kind of processing that? Or did you not even have time to, to go down that road?
4: No, that, you yeah, no, you have to go down that road. And, you know, listen, this, the only thing that I'm allowed to say, you know, we are together, uh, when, when, when it begins and we're figuring out our next steps. And yeah, so I did think about how we got together, and it wasn't really, you know, I didn't have to be terribly thoughtful um, figuring that one out. I mean, he gets up early in the morning, he works, he comes home, he's got he's got his girl, and you know that's it. That's his life. It's supporting those people he loves. So so he that's that's the beauty of it. He doesn't change that much. Nothing dramatic has happened to him, you know. It will, but. In these episodes, but it hasn't t- to date, you know. In the interim, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like he ran off and became a race car driver or lost his mind and decided to start a rock band or something. You know what I mean? Um, right. You know what I'm saying? Like I did in real life. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> one of your one of your big scenes in this season is comes in the the final episode where you tell Lorelai you don't want her to leave um, and. It felt like that in that scene you were kind of um which it's a great scene and it felt like you were kind of moving at Lorelei level speed. Is that is could you talk a little bit about just in terms of how you spoke?
4: Those those scenes in the kitchen there, there were a couple in the kitchen, right? That were pretty explosive. Um Yeah, those those yeah. scenes to me, those were those were the best scenes that we've done together in the entire um the entire series. So, um I quite enjoyed doing those scenes. Speaking of pace and clip and all that, in a one-on-one situation like that, you know, that's different. Yeah, you you know, you got to hit the ball back over like maybe faster to to try to win the point. You know what I'm saying? That's a heated back and forth. So, that 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 means, you know, you don't have to worry about getting caught up in someone else's rhythm or pace you actually do want to get caught up and she wanted to get caught up in mine because you know that's when the magic happens um so um i'm very eager to see those scenes i haven't seen them yet but i i I remember doing it and thinking wow that was you know we did some we did some pretty good work there so
1: you you had mentioned in in an interview that there was one scene where you got really emotional yeah is that is that one of these scenes? It
4: was in the kitchen, yeah. Well, yeah. okay. Yeah, it was the kitchen it was it was the scene where she comes in and says uh you know, I'm I'm going to go wild or what? I'm going to go wild.
1: Oh, right, before
0: she leaves.
4: Okay, so so the first the first time we did it, you know, she came in, she came in on the very first take with some very very powerful, very powerful emotion. And, you know, and I knew what the scene was about. And so I let all of that stuff rise up in me. And I got very emotional in that scene. And it was just such a, I don't know if it was very Luke-like, but, you know, it it it, it appeared. And they I don't think they even printed the take. They didn't use it. But I remember, yeah, I remember, yeah, that was the kitchen scene that was very powerful. That was a very powerful scene. And then it changed and you know that kind of a thing um, but it started out as being a very emotional experience yeah so
1: was it just the way that she came in there and delivered
4: yeah it thing? was that and it was also you know the way that you know i i it's what i felt you know it's what the character felt the the thing they they teach you in in school in acting school is and if you're really lucky you get a teacher that 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 really harps on this one point is If you've done your, if you know your character and you know your character really well, and you believe and you've bought into the given circumstances of, of the situation that you're in, whatever feeling comes up, whatever emotion comes up is the correct one. And don't edit yourself, and don't try to cut it off, and get in your head and, oh well, I have to steer this over here because that's more correct. No, you let it come up. Um, and that's, that's what I did. Um, whether it was appropriate or the correct balance for the scene, you know, that's not for me to decide that's for the director. You know, the beauty of all this is, is they can just do, they can do 20, 30, 40 takes if they want until they, until somebody gets it right.
3: (laughs) Have you seen any of the new, um, uh, installments yet?
4: I've not seen anything. I haven't seen an inch of footage okay, okay. mm no, they won't give me the codes. They've locked me out. I've tried to break into the buildings and you know <laughs> I've threatened people and they they're just not they're just not letting me see any of it i I'll see it tonight. I'm going to the premiere tonight.
1: Oh, that's right. Are they airing everything at the premiere or
4: I don't think I'm gonna sit yeah. through six hours no i <laughs> yeah. no, i I think they're just going to do one, and then I, when it starts, I'll get up and leave, and I'll go to the after party and wait for everybody until it's finished. Because I, I will, I will not watch it.
3: You don't like to watch yourself.
4: I don't like. No, I do not. I, I do not. Thank you. No, I'll I'll be at the bar. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be watching a, a ball game or something. I don't want to see that. <laughs> not interested. <laughs>
1: you know. I think it was this uh, this last week. Amy Sherman Palladino said that Luke was originally meant to be a woman character named Daisy. Uh huh. Did you did you know that going into it?
4: Uh, I no, I, I did not know that. No.
1: But yeah, I, I had I hadn't realized that you know the relationship between you and Lorelai, as she put it, came to be once it became clear that you and Lauren Graham had um, had chemistry. Oh yeah. Can you can you talk about those early days and kind of, you know, and what that, maybe that conversation was like with, with Amy in terms of, you know, taking the story in that direction? And if you guys kind of, did you have any inkling that it would go in that direction?
4: Well, you know, when I was cast, it was for a guest star. It wasn't for a series regular. But the pilot begins and ends with Luke Steiner, so we all knew something was up. So we just figured Okay, this is a heat check. This is a chemistry check. If the chemistry's there, they'll expand the character. If it's not, they'll, you know, maybe they'll just write the character out or they'll get somebody else. So, um, you know, for me, for, for my money, uh, the chemistry was apparent immediately. Uh, and I knew it was going to work. And that's really the most important element of an on screen relationship. Um, and it's why, you know, and it's why so many people that that actually um, get together in real life and then try to act together. There's really no chemistry anymore because there's no tension. The tension is gone. Um, and you and I, you know, I used to see that in acting class uh, in New York back in the day. You know, every single day, you could always tell if if these two people were hooking up, (laughs) because the scene the scene would be really boring. You know, I mean, they'd be really relaxed and uh, up there, but my God, there was no tension, (laughs) and the teacher would stop them and say, "Uh, "So, when did you guys get together?" (laughs) Um. Anyway, so this is, um, but yeah, so the so the chemistry has always been you know, really rich and thick and creamy. So, (laughs) 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 and, uh, and, you know, when you have that, um, you can, you can stretch that out for many seasons, which Amy did. She, she, you know, I don't know. She didn't sit down with us and talk to us about the, the direction of the show. We're not consulted on to that degree at all. It's just that I think the network saw, the potential in that relationship and she saw the potential in that relationship and what it could do for the show overall. And uh, I mean, I don't know if it ever intended to become, you know, the the main storyline or one of the main storylines, but that's kind of how it ended up. And, you know, I'm very thankful for it. Um, And you can just sort of chalk it up to, to the chemistry. I mean, when there's that kind of on-screen magic, you, you, you want to exploit that. You know what I mean? and and Amy did yeah. it very tastefully and she didn't overdo it she didn't underdo it you know what i mean she she knows how to handle that kind of thing so when you've got that that nuclear fuel uh you don't want to you don't want to overuse it so
1: yeah i mean you can't even imagine the show without that element
4: right
3: i wanted to ask um we were talking before about the the scene in the kitchen that you guys did for a year in the life and and what a a great experience you you said that was Looking back at the original seven seasons, is there an episode that is your favorite? Either because it, it it challenged you in some way, or you have fond memories of working on it, or it just turned out really great. Are there certain moments from the original seven that that stand out in your mind?
4: Oh, there's one. Uh, yes, there is. Um, okay. Well, it was the day that uh, it was the day that Brian De Palma, the famed director came to visit the set to bring his daughter by, um, Lola, who is a big fan of the show. And, you know, I came off the diner set into the back area uh, because they were uh, t- we were taking a little break for them to set some lighting. And somebody said, Scott, I'd like you to meet Brian De Palma. <laughs> and I went, holy crap. <laughs> so um, anyway, I know a little bit about him. He's a Philadelphia boy. Uh, we have this, we share a birthday. Um, I know a little bit about how he grew up and why he got into f- the film business and why he got into the gory, 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 carry side of the film business uh, to begin with. Um, and uh, so I was, I was quite pleased to meet him and chat with him a little bit. And then You know, we were in the diner shooting, uh, uh, Lorelei and I were shooting a scene in there, and it was a really, really daunting scene for both of us because she comes in to the diner in this real rush and a huff and spitting out all kinds of dialogue. And I didn't have a lot of lines, but that's even maybe harder because you don't want to screw up the other actor by missing a cue and like, you know, she's got a big chunk of dialogue and then you go, huh? Or what? Or, you know, well, I didn't, and you know, the the time it's all timing, right? So the pressure was on me not to screw up her timing because she had such a daunting monologue to do. Um, And so De Palma came in to on the set. No, no, he didn't come on the set. He, he was in video village watching her side of it. Then when they turned the camera and she, you know, she executed flawlessly, Um, and we were both pretty nervous because Brian De Palma's like watching this on a monitor. (laughs) So we're thinking, God, if we do really well, you know, we could be in like, you know, we could be in we could be in a big movie. You just never know. Um, so when they turned the camera around to do my coverage and do my close ups, Brian De Palma, the famed director, the Oscar nominated winning director, decided to come in and sit right next to the camera. Where I'm supposed to look. <laughs> uh. So it was Brian De Palma's head next to the camera lens and then Lauren's head right above his. And I had to try not to look at Brian De Palma while I was doing my, you know, my six or seven little lines while she was spitting out all this dialogue. It was hysterical. After it was done, <laughs> after it was done, he gets up and winks and he and he goes to back to Video Village and Lauren looks at me and she goes, how did you possibly get through that? I said, I don't know. I was
0: scared
4: shitless.
1: <laughs> Do you remember which uh, which scene that was?
4: Uh, no, I couldn't tell you the season. It was, pr- it was probably season five or six. I-, I I just couldn't tell. I don't. I don't yeah. know. I don't watch a show. I have no idea what any of these things. <laughs> yeah, it was number <laughs> five three five dash. It was the the kooky uh, leprechaun episode. I I have no idea. <laughs>
1: Do you watch? Have you watched any of the show? Uh,
4: No, I I really don't. I don't watch it. Uh, I watch the pilot. And that's it. I haven't seen anything else. No. Yeah, I've seen clips. You know, I think it's I think it's really fine stuff. It's really funny, great stuff. But I won't watch myself. I'll watch everybody else. I'm big fans of everybody else on the show. I just don't want to watch me. So I, I therefore I don't watch the show.
1: I get that. I don't like to listen to this podcast. Right. You know what? Yeah.
4: Your own voice creeps you out. I get it. Yeah. I, you know, so now you know how I feel. But but this is different. You got to look at yourself.
3: Well, I, I wanted to ask, obviously, uh, there has been such excitement about the show coming back. And, um, you know, they even did the the promotion where they, they turned a bunch of coffee shops into Luke's Diner. And I believe you even went to one of those um, last month. I mean, there, obviously the show was really beloved when it was on, but I feel like the, the fervor is even more present now, uh, and maybe that's just because of social media makes it easier to see it, but um, how what has been your response to just the, the excitement about all this?
4: Um, It's, well, definitely the biggest thing I've ever been a part of. Uh, Netflix is really hitting out of the park, uh, promotion and marketing-wise. You know, they've got some very capable people over there who know what they're doing, and you know they're doing a great job promoting this, and uh, you know we're very we're all very busy promoting it. Um, it seems like every day we're doing uh, TV interviews, and the talk shows are going to start, and we're doing this Today Show, Rachel Ray, Jimmy Fallon, all, all kinds of stuff. Um, so, you know, it it really you know there's a big appetite out there. There's a nine, people were starving for nine years, and now. You know, it's coming back in a different kind of a form that is, you know, maybe a little bit more interesting to the fans. You know, it's 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 this, it's the same DNA and pedigree, but you know, these are longer scenes, longer episodes, more in depth, um, and you know, uh, what can I say? Maybe a little more R-rated. Who knows? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, I mean, it's it's. It's huge. I mean, everywhere I go, it's it, people are coming up and saying good luck and can't wait to see it. And social media has gone crazy. And it's just, it's just fantastic. It's a nice ride to be on.
1: You had said uh, a little while back that the ending was going to be open-ended and it wouldn't give watchers a sense of finality, um, which I definitely— get now that I have seen it.
4: Right I mean it could, I mean it it could and you know it's like yes and no. They could continue it but they don't need to. I mean there right. there's finality for people that want it to be over and there's you know there's there's hope that there could be more for people that can see more episodes. You know what I mean?
3: Right.
1: Right. Do you do you feel like it's more leaning one way or the other?
4: Do do I? Yeah. Do I want it to continue or do I feel that it could continue?
1: Um I guess both. either one yeah. both
4: yeah um you know I don't know I I just think I think now that we've done this and um and it was so pleasant it was just so ki- kind of easy to do it and uh I know from our, our end you know it was easy I know it was it was a tremendous amount of heavy lifting heavy lifting on the studio and network side to get the deal done and, and to their credit, they did it. These these deals are very, very complicated. And it was a tremendous amount of work to get the back lot in shape at Warner Brothers to make it look like Stars Hollow again. That took months and months and, you know, hundreds of people working every day all day to try to, to get that town looking as great as they got it looking. I mean, that that that's kind of an amazing job they do back there. Uh, makes our job so much easier. Um, so, yeah, to make that investment again in time and resources and all that, sure. I mean, you know it really depends on 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 what netflix wants netflix wants to do going forward i mean i don't i don't know if if they'd want to do it again i would assume they would if the numbers are good and the numbers look like they're going to be really high for this mm-hmm. um and then it really it really just comes down to amy and dan you know it's it's really their call um you know if they feel like it's it's done and there's nothing left in the tank and they don't want to sort of tarnish the legacy of this, Um, then they won't do it. Uh, no matter how many great ideas they might have, they just, you know, I, I think they might want to let it, let it alone now. And uh, But look, you just never know. You just never know. Right. Yeah. Just yeah. never know. I mean, you know how it ended, right? I mean, there could be more, right? What didn't you see?
1: Yeah. Well, I th- I feel like, and particularly Jess's kind of longing look to uh, Rory, kind of that it, that more than even the la- last line made me think that there's going to be more.
4: I mean, I mean, imagine that, and and you know, and Milo's blowing up now; he's becoming this right. this big TV star, and with this great show, and which is probably going to get nominated all over the place, and deservedly so. So there's there's probably a lot of life left in this whole thing, and. Um, yeah, I'll be, so uh, hopefully I'll be serving coffee. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, a lot of people are going to be watching this over Thanksgiving weekend, obviously, and clearly you won't be since you don't want to watch yourself, but, uh, what will you be doing instead?
4: <laughs> I will be, um, well, I have a, uh, I have my band Smith radio and our single is being released on iTunes and Google and Amazon on all major download platforms on the 23rd of November. It's called Ha Ha Song. And so I will be tracking that and doing promotion uh, and appearances for that. I'm going to be distracted by the music.
1: Wonderful. Well, Scott, it was such a pleasure having you
4: on. Yeah, great talking to you. It was fun.
1: Yeah,
3: Thank you so much, Scott. Have fun tonight.
4: Okay, take care.
1: That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for this week's Aria, where one of us takes a few minutes to tell you about something we feel particularly passionate about in TV right now. This week's Aria comes from Matt.
2: Be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. That's the famous moral of many a cautionary tale, the monkey's paw in particular. It echoes in the viewer's mind now more than ever. Reboots and reimaginings have become increasingly common in film and TV as a means of protecting media companies' bottom lines by treating art and entertainment as a set of endlessly tweakable, revisable, and renewable properties. Some of them are terrible And even fans have to admit that some of the higher profile and more ambitious ones have their problems. But still, we hope. We hope because of nostalgia. We hope because of loyalty and affection. Most of all, we hope because we want what's gone to return. Which brings me to Deadwood. All roads ultimately lead there for me. It's one of my favorite series of all time. David Milch's town-based western captivated me like nothing I'd seen since the debut of The Sopranos. It spoke to me. It spoke to a lot of people. And then, in 2006, suddenly, violently, it was gone. Cancelled after three seasons. The reasons were not clear. They still aren't. The expense of production, the peculiarities of Milch's working methods, a rights dispute between HBO and Paramount. Doesn't matter now. The imperatives of capitalism decreed an untimely demise. Periodically we hear rumors that Milch is about to wrap the story up with two films that HBO promised him a long time ago. With the immense cast scattered to the winds, that became much harder immediately after the cancellation. And it grew even more difficult, if indeed it was ever really feasible. But still, I dream. I mean, really dream, at night, when I'm deep in sleep. Let me tell you about my Deadwood dream. I dreamed that David Milch's Western had miraculously returned to HBO 11 years after its unexpected cancellation. The opening credits were essentially unchanged, but they were missing a few familiar names and had gained a few new ones. And the first shot was a close-up of a smoldering pile of rubble. The viewer realized with a shock that we had skipped ahead in the timeline. The plan, as outlined by Milch, was for the town of Deadwood to burn down at the end of Season 4, an event that occurred in reality on September 26, 1879 and then to be rebuilt in increments through Season 5. The show's cancellation interrupted that narrative and created a serious production and logistical problem nearly as pernicious as the challenge of reassembling what was, at the time, the largest cast of regulars in scripted TV, a veritable murderer's row of character actors who were thenceforth cast into the pop culture wilderness in search of fresh employment. After a long time, a sooty boot kicked the pile and broke it apart. The boot kept kicking it and kicking it until we saw a glint of dingy metal. Then a sooty hand reached into the frame and lifted a piece of charred ceiling strut, revealing a can of peaches. The hand belonged to Al Swearingen, the owner of the Gem Saloon. The camera pulled back to reveal Swearengen contemplating the peach can as if it were Yorick's skull. His face was partly masked by black and gray sweat-streaked ash, and his dark suit was shot through with moth holes burned into it by cinders. Swearengen unsheathed his throat-slitting buck knife, forced up the can's lid, speared a peach half, and lifted it, syrup gleaming on the blade, and popped it all into his mouth at once, as if it were a piece of hard candy, and chewed. After a long moment, he raised an eyebrow approvingly, took a long look around, and said, If you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. The camera pulled back again, taking in Swearingen from head to toe, and in the process revealed E.B. Farnham, the town's erstwhile mayor, standing nearby clothed in as much soot as finery. The camera pulled back further and rose higher and higher, taking in a panorama of destruction where a hub of civilization had once stood. Everything was in ruins. The Gem Saloon, Cy Tolliver's upscale Bella Union, Mr. Wu's Chinatown with its caged women and chickens and flesh-eating hogs, Farnham's Grand Central Hotel, The jailhouse and sheriff's office where Seth Bullock had once imprisoned thieves and drunks and disturbers of the peace. The schoolhouse where his wife Martha had taught the town's children. The newspaper office where A.W. Merrick had chronicled the town's mostly idealized history. The cramped cabin where Doc Cochran had treated the sick and elderly and deranged. It was gone. All gone. The Black Hills of South Dakota seemed to have acquired a brood of children... 300 buildings had been raised into heaps of blackened toothpicks. At the farthest edge of the background, he could faintly discern the hunched-over figure of Calamity Jane rummaging through a molehill in search of something to drink. After that, it's all a blur, sort of a mine trailer consisting of intimations and images all mixed strangely with stories on a computer screen and on newspaper and magazine pages, like an old-fashioned movie montage, revealing how Deadwood had returned for a fourth season and gotten around the problem of having to rebuild one of the largest and most complex sets in the history of moving pictures, an actual working town consisting of historically accurate building exteriors that all housed miniature sound stages, the better-to-frame shots that juxtaposed people plotting or drinking or screwing in the foreground against pedestrians and horses and carriages roving the town's muddy main thoroughfare at middle distance and more people in the buildings on the other side of the street glimpsed through door frames and windows. The masterstroke, it seems, was to skip ahead on the timeline so that season four became an ellipsis in the master narrative This choice absolved HBO of the expense of having to recreate the town so that it exactly matched what we had seen in the first three seasons. Apparently, after heated discussion and some consternation, the decision had been made to give continuity permission to go to hell. This not only saved HBO and Milch's crew tens of millions of dollars and untold man-hours of preparation and construction time, it also introduced an element of mystery into the story of Deadwood. What person or persons or institution was responsible for the conflagration? How did this catastrophe come about, and what could be done to keep it from happening again? Every character blamed some other character, or some failing in the town's government, or within individual institutions, the sheriff's office, the recently established fire department, the godless heathens, the ignorant cattle herders, and stagecoach drivers who'd been repeatedly cautioned to dispose of their cigars and cigarettes with care, and, of course, those Yankton politicians who had been stingy about dispersing funds that would have brought water down from the rivered hills by way of above-ground wooden aqueducts. In time, it became clear that what we were seeing in Season 5 was actually a combination of Season 5 and Season 4. Season 4's narrative was about how a nexus of greed... And incompetence and generalized ignorance about collective responsibility had sparked the fire that burned Deadwood to the ground. This narrative was encoded within the dialogue and monologues of Season 5, which concerned the rebuilding of the town and the reimagining of its community. In this dream of mine, we saw businesses founded, friendships established and re-established, resentments rekindled, grudges set aside, love affairs nurtured, There was a marriage and a birth, an adoption and several deaths, some unspeakably savage, others unremarkable. And all of these stories unfolded against an oral backdrop of hammering and sawing and a visual background of cross-timber grids rising up to form walls and roofs. Over the course of 13 episodes, the show got visibly darker but in a way that ironically lightened the mood because the comparative lessening of sunlight was the byproduct of all those new buildings. Thus did the narrative of the rebuilding of Deadwood after a catastrophe become the narrative of the recreation of Deadwood after its cancellation. Nobody complained that all the actors looked ten years older because disaster does put the years on. Near the end of the season, Fall leaves appeared on the forested hills in the background. And then winter came. And the characters wrapped themselves in winter coats and scarves and thick gloves. The final episode took place on Christmas Eve. An avalanche poured down on the town, followed by a blizzard. There were no serious injuries, and only one death. Some yammering drunk from out of town that nobody much liked anyway. But the deluge of snow cut off many of the citizens from their domiciles. So Al opened his saloon to the dispossessed and brought up crates of peaches and served them along with bourbon and hardtack and, dressed as Father Christmas, welcomed his guests, their ranks thick with prospectors and whores and ruddy-faced orphans, and read to them from A Christmas Carol, which had been published nearly four decades earlier on the other side of the ocean. Rouge was better than his word, Swearengen read. He did it all and infinitely more. And to tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became a good friend, as good a master and as good a man as the old city knew, or any other good old city, town or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see this alteration in him. But he let them laugh and little heeded them. For he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe, for good, at which some people did not have their fill of laughter at the outset. And knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes in grins, as have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough to him.
1: That's it for this week's show. The Time Vulture TV Podcast away. is produced by Sam Dingman and Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our Director of Production, and Andy like Bowers is our Chief Content Officer. The Turn Vulture TV, TV, TV Podcast is part of the Panicly Network. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at GazellaFint.
2: I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt zoller
3: And I'm Jen Chaney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening.
5: It's not even rooming up to be anywhere It's not dark yet but it's getting there And my sense of humanity has gone down the drain Behind every beautiful thing There's been some kind of pain She wrote me a letter As she wrote it so kind She put down and writing What was in her mind Just don't see why I should even